to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Today, we will be joined by Jim Lorraine to discuss his agritourism business. Jim Lorraine, the self-described director of fun at Riverbreeze Farm, grew up on his family farm in Upper Onslow, settled by the Lorraine family in 1791. At the age of 19, Jim took over the family farm from his parents with the intention of continuing the family beef farm legacy. Poor beef markets in the 90s forced Jim and his wife, Tricia, to explore other opportunities to support and sustain the family farm. Strawberry, sweet corn, roadside stands, U-picks, greenhouses, meat markets, and corn mazes all led River Breeze Farm to becoming a leading agritourism destination. A strong sense of community, both locally and provincially, Jim led successfully Against all odds, negotiate with Premier Sneal and Dr. Strang to allow graduation and prom ceremonies across the province of Nova Scotia in both 2020 and 2021 while hosting local high school CEC grad and prom ceremonies at River Breeze Farm. From survival to success to sustainability and now early stages of succession, Jim and Tricia have experienced it all. Their ability to pivot to new directions when faced with adversity such as COVID restrictions and hurricanes will sustain Riverbreeze Farm for generations to come. Jim is married to Tricia. Together, they have three children, Nick, Aaron, and Jillian. Thanks for being with us today, Jim. I get a luxury of talking to a neighbor that I've lived close to for my entire life, almost 40 years now, and seen some of the uh, the great things that you're doing, not just on the farm, but in the community. So let's start. Give us a little bit of history. The, the Lorraines have been in Upper Onslow for about 230 years. I don't need you to go all the way back, but let's talk a little bit about your family history in the in the region. Yeah, well, thanks, Brad, for having me. And you're right, we have been neighbors for years, and I was pretty excited when you actually reached out to do this. Our family just briefly settled here in 1791. Uh, my office I'm sitting in right now is off of the house that was built in 1791. Uh, we still have a mud basement and whatnot in the house, as many farm families would be quite uh, tuned to. So we have always been primarily beef farmers throughout the years. My father, as many may know, um, got into politics when I was four years of age and basically kept the farm going to see if one day I'd take it over, which I did. I was 19 years old when I finally decided to take over the farm. And I want to tell you a quick story on that. I, I went to the AC out of high school and I went through the first term. I passed. I decided I was going to feed cattle. I was going to buy and sell cattle like my father did. And that's how I was going to make my millions. But having decided over Christmas holidays, I'm not going back to the AC. I was terrified of having that conversation with my father until about almost mid-January. He said, uh, we were in the barn. He said, by the way, when are you going back to the AC when classes start? And I said, I'm not going back. And he said, why not? And I said, well, I'm going to take over the farm. And he said, okay. And I remember thinking, couldn't you have at least yelled at me or something? I just spent a month <laughs> of my life dreading this conversation. All you said was okay. But so leading into that, that was that's actually one of my regrets in life. I have very few that I didn't stick it out and get an education. Uh, it would have paid dividends down the road. But anyway, that's basically the history of our firm and where I came in. Yeah. So I guess I, I'm a little a little younger, not much, but you know, so I kind of remember the, the Lorraine family farm. I don't really remember your dad as a politician, more of just a, a community member, because he would have been Minister of Agriculture and Deputy Premier before my remembering days. Um, but I always remember the, you know, you guys were just across the, the road and now just across the river from me. 
I always remember you always being active in the community, always being active in the 4-H programs. But my real first memory, I think, was when I was in high school, when you folks were looking to take the next step from being beef farmers to beef marketers. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to that first phase of moving from just on-farm sales to reaching out into um, the retail market and, and getting more of a connection with those consumers? Sure. We, uh, in the, Trisha and I got married in the mid nineties. And at that time we were solely beef farmers and we were struggling as many did back in the mid nineties. The beef markets were, uh, have always been cyclical, but at that time there was just nothing there. And because it was over 200 years of family history, feeding cattle, you've had this romantic attachment to the family history and, and you didn't want to see it go. And so we decided we're going to try to fix it up. And the way that we saw was through direct marketing to consumers. So in 99, we actually built um, our farm market out here at the farm. And we actually, uh, when we first started, it seemed to take off fairly well. Our issue with the farm market, it could have still been running today. uh, But to be honest, we were stretched too thin at the time. So basically, we moved into the market, we stood that thing up, it started going like gangbusters, and we looked in the rearview mirror, and the farm was falling apart. So we'd move back to the farm and fix it up, and we'd look in the rearview mirror, and the farm market was falling apart. And yes, we had a lot of good people around us and whatnot, but we were just stretched too thin. And to be honest, you know, and and I can be honest now, um, my passion was not beef farming. I enjoyed it, yes, but it wasn't just the core of my being. Uh, which is where I am today. So uh, for a variety of reasons, eventually 10 years later, we had to shut that market down. Yeah, and I think, I mean, all of my memories of the market are very fond. That's where the school bus let us off every day. You know, we'd pop in and, you know, my family, I think, was there fairly frequent picking up burgers and steaks on the weekend. And I I still remember it would have been, a geez, maybe like 2007 or eight. I was working with the Federation and we were starting to do some public outreach stuff. And I came and did a, a bit of a, a quick video with you. And I think I still have it in my archive somewhere. And you said exactly that is, you know, there's a lot of things going on in, and I'm selling experiences, not beef. And for those who don't know you personally, I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about you the most is how you interact with people. And that you can't, you can't really do both of those things at the same time, right? Run the farm, interact with people. And now where I see where you've gone from the market days to all of the other stuff that happens on the corner, it makes a lot more sense that that was the natural transition of your business. Yeah, and so I was four years old when dad uh, got into politics. And so I was always present for his rallies and things like that. And I saw his ability to connect with people, to help people, to make them feel better about themselves. And so having that training all throughout my life, that's all I ever knew was, was dad help people, it created a personality within me that my personality almost should be on a stage somewhere. I don't know if that sounds arrogant or not, but that's the way I yeah, think. Sure. Like I want yeah. to be solving solutions for people. And those solutions are family togetherness, family time, memories, things like that. So my personality really belongs on a stage. And I found that through agritourism. And really the way agritourism got started for us, it began with our strawberry UPEC, 97, I believe that was. And we start open up a UPEC. So we had a lot of people coming to the farm for the first time ever. Our family had never done anything like that. And I wanted to put my own stamp 
on the farm rather than just be the you know the ninth generation beef farmer. And so we started with that. And interestingly enough, in 2002, we went to Toronto to the North America Farm Direct Marketing Association conference. There were 1,200 farms there. I went to learn about retailing beef and products. And every session I went and sat in, and there'd be a couple hundred people in a session, I'd sit beside people and trying to learn from people. And do you have a retail outlet? No, I have a corn maze. And I'd see somebody else, do you have a retail outlet? No, I have a corn maze. And I remember calling my wife, Trisha, that night. And I said, if I run into one more person that has a corn maze, I'm going to flip it. And so when we came back, we thought, hey, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we could build a corn maze behind our market as a way to attract people to the farm to buy more beef. And of course, that never happened. They're two different businesses altogether. And one took on a life of its own and one did not. Here we are. Yeah. And, you know, again, I I think back over the last 20 years and to see that expansion, you know, so you, you referenced the corn maze in the early 2000s. For those folks who maybe not might not be as familiar with you and what you do. Can you talk a little bit about how that has continued to grow? So, you know, for the listeners, I'm not going to take any of Jimmy's thunder, but I drive by there twice a day, sometimes five times a day, depending on which which way I'm going. But, you know, now there's a petting zoo and a bouncing pad. And, you know, I think two years ago, you you introduced the cut flower garden and there's a pumpkin patch. Can you talk about how you went from just that corn maze idea and expanded and don't touch on the fear farm yet. I'd like to get in that separately. Sure. So in 2002, after that conference, uh, Trisha and I talked about it over the winter months and we decided we're going to plant that corn maze. And we're not going to tell anybody. I mean, nobody, um, because there's no shortage of people that'll tell you you're crazy. It'll never work. <laughs> and we just wanted to try something without uh, getting any feedback. And so I'll never forget. We actually plant the corn that may, I guess it would be. And it would be mid-June or something like that. I took my tractor lawnmower. That Now we professionally design it now, but at that time we were just cutting trails in the corn. And I'll never forget, I was about 100 feet out in the field with the tractor lawnmower, mowing out corn maize trails. And I thought, well, I should try to hook it back. I'm thinking long-term in the fall when the customers come. I should try to hook the trail around this way. And when I did, I'm facing back to the parking lot. And my father was standing there with his hands on his hips and he looked angry <laughs> and I'd never told him what we were doing. And I can only imagine what he thought. So anyway, I went back out and he had a few words. What the hell are you doing? And I told him, <laughs> going to make a corn maze. And he said, a what? And I said, a corn maze. People will pay to walk through it. And he said, you're just ruining a goddamn good crop of corn. So nobody's <laughs> going to pay to walk through that. And he was angry. He, there's more choice words than what I just can say here on screen. They got this car and he sped off. And so you fast forward to that September, we had probably a hundred people there, which then was big. And uh, I'll never forget dad pulling in, in his car, looking straight ahead, put his window down, never looked at me, said, guess you're right and drove away. And so he went from my biggest detractor to my biggest supporter on the whole corn maze thing. And then of course, being a, at that point, he had retired two or three years earlier. He got to, as a former politician, sit at the corn maze and talk to lots of people coming by. And so he really appreciated it. So from there, we, we, uh, we recognized an opportunity. We added a petting zoo, then we added pig races, then we added swing sets, slides, giant jumping pillows, you name it, a whole bunch of cow train rides, all these kind of things. And we just kept growing it year over year. Because really, as you referenced earlier, uh, we realized we could make more money selling screams and smiles than we could ground beef. 
And I used to tell people that. In the early days, when people found out what we were doing, there was no shortage of people who told us it would not work. Once it started working, the conversation then changed to, how long do you think the fad will last? And mm -hmm. my comment was always, as long as people like to scream and smile, we'll be here. We'll take on different, you know, different attractions and, and we'll move with the market and stuff like that. But we're going to be here. And we are. Absolutely. And, you know, from that late August, early September, right through the end of October, you know, I think there's more traffic in Upper Onslow than there is in downtown Truro. On those weekends, you get off the highway and there's a lineup to pull into the parking lot on both sides of the road. And for a small rural community, you know, and I haven't been to the corn maze in a few years, but people come from across the province, right? So it's an, it's an economic driver for the area as well, beyond just, you know, the, the personal business benefit and for you folks, like Truro has become a destination for those six or eight weeks. Yeah. And it's uh, interesting. You should say that because way back in the day, 2008, 9, 10, I can't remember what it was. Trisha and I were in town in our hearse. We have a hearse. Yeah. Um, so we were in town uh, in the hearse. We went through the drive through at Wendy's and the manager stuck his head out. And he said, uh, I saw the sign on your Park Street booth saying the corn maze is open this weekend because that year it was that Saturday fell on November 1st, I think it was. And traditionally, we don't open in November. But we decided to do that. And I said, oh, are you coming out? And he said, no. So I could, I, I was happy to see it. So I know to staff accordingly. And I said, how so? And he said, back in the early part of October, he said, I'm new to the area. I moved here as the manager. And uh, he said, staff called me up on a Saturday night and said, it's a zoo in here. We're short staffed. He yeah. said, I went down, I saw the crowd. I jumped on the friars. I thought, wait, now it's my job to know what events are going on in town. So I took a quick, quick minute to go to the lineup and say, where are we at? What, what event's going on? And he said, Haunted Corn Maze, Haunted Corn Maze, Haunted Corn Maze. He said, now it's our biggest days of the year. So that yeah. uh, same year, we went after Thanksgiving weekend, I think, on a Monday night. We don't have time to cook turkey dinner, or we didn't then. We went down to uh, Frank and Gino's. And the waiter said, so you're the who's responsible for what happened here Saturday night. And I honestly didn't know what he meant. And I said, what happened? <laughs> And he said, we are now a zoo. He said, it used to be Mother's Day, New Year's Eve, you name it. Those were our biggest days. Now our biggest days of the year at Haunted Corn Maze. The Roby Street Esso, same story. And so we know the benefits. It's not just to us. It's to the community at large, to the people we employ, to the other businesses that get the spinoff. You know, there's a lot of good things happening here. And to your point of, you know, where we draw from, yes, they do come across the province and we also get bus tours out of Fredericton, out of Sydney. Like they come from all over. So it's a lot of fun. And as long as you pay attention to it, we'll keep growing. Yeah. And, and I think it always kind of makes me smile at the same time. You know, I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in a, in a farming community. My dad was a dairy herdsman. And to actually see, you know, the things outside of just traditional agriculture that can generate income and a living and employ people. Right. Like I'm going to I want to touch on just some of the other economic benefits and and spinoffs here in a minute. But I think that's one of the things that we often in ag don't get enough credit for. And it's some of those non-traditional things that are maybe more identifiable. So, Jim, we, we actually just heard uh, a gentleman knock at your door uh, and talk about strawberries, uh, talk about the corn that uh, he's purchased from you over the last summer. And he sounded very 
very excited about the products that you provide, but it it sounds like you're transitioning away f- out of the strawberry business a little bit. Can you can you talk about that and and maybe tell us uh, tell us what led to that decision? Yeah, and I'd like to point out I did not pay that guy to show up. Here. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah, known him I, for- I've known you a long time. You did. <laughs> <laughs> that that was funny how that worked out, but yeah. So for those of you that maybe didn't hear or see. Um, we had a gentleman just show up at the door during this podcast. I uh, had some strawberry boxes that he wanted to uh, give me. Um, I just informed him that we're not doing strawberries anymore. Um, so I guess uh, this is the first I've talked about it publicly. Um, but uh, for a number of years, like the, the strawberries really saved us back in the day in 97 when we started. The last few years, it's been tougher and tougher. Um, this past season, we had uh, some kind of strawberry black rod or something on the strawberry, something I'd never seen before. And so basically for every box that we sold, we threw it four. It oh was four. And we've already been playing around with getting out of strawberries anyway. And if I'm being honest, I'm 54. I spend, uh, I sleep about an hour and a half a day during strawberry frost protection, planting season, all that kind of stuff. And I'm finding it harder year over year. So this past year, we lost a bunch of money. And we decided to get out of strawberries. So those won't be happening this year. But we're constantly looking for new events and whatnot. We'll be adding some more things on. We'll announce those later in the season. But it's just going to be a different way of doing things. And perhaps I won't have to sit awake all night long watching for ice crystals to form. (laughs) We're right at sea level here, so we get a lot of frost, more so than many of the farmers. And uh, so, yeah, it's killing me. You heard him about the sweet corn. You know, we get a lot of that of people that are so happy that we're doing this and doing that and just want to share with you, you know, their feelings of the farm because we created it that way. And, and it's very gratifying to know that people really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it it is kind of interesting to hear. And it doesn't surprise me for two reasons. The fact that you're, you're quite a social person uh, and have such a, a great local market to hear those people drop by and say, you know what, I, I love you guys. I love your product. Um, so that's also good to hear. So one of, one of the next things I, I want to kind of briefly touch on, and I think I kind of know the answer, but I don't really think I know the, the real answer is, you know, so you've got this, uh, it's probably what, like a seven to eight acre corn maze would be my rough guess, um, yeah. somewhere in that range. Um, so can you just give a, a high level overview of the type of corn you use and whether or not it's different than regular fodder types corn. And then what you do with the corn at the end of the season. Uh, I think my interpretation was early on, you just used regular corn and then either you or another local farmer would harvest at the end of the season. What does that look like? And, uh, or does it, am I completely wrong in the original and current approach? No, we use a high heat unit corn in the corn maze, just because we're trying to keep it greener longer into the, into the fall. And stronger. You know, we've had yeah. hurricanes in 2003, now again in 2022, and mm-hmm. not much of a friend of ours, obviously, when you have a cornfield or a corn maze, yeah. um, but we get steamrolled. So we're always trying to find varieties that will stand up to wind. You won't find one that'll stand up necessarily to hurricanes like that, but uh, yeah. that's what we're always trying. And typically, in the end of the, uh, the year, uh, another farmer takes the crop, um, feeds it to his cattle. This year, we had to hire a uh, harvester to come in because it was flat on the ground. Mm-hmm. wasn't really good for livestock feed, so we just blew it over the field. Yeah, and I guess you know it's from a we do a lot of work with the livestock crew, so it's good to see that that 
that corn is going to use beyond the entertainment value as well. So not that it makes a big difference to us either way, but it is good to see that. Uh, no, it is that important being, though. That That yeah. is important though. It, like everybody gets to benefit out of this thing. So that's right. Another, you know, like we're always trying to make use of food. Everybody is and try to cut down on waste. And that's one of them. Atlantic Stockyards Limited has been Atlantic Canada's major livestock market for over 60 years. The stockyards attract buyers regionally as well as extending into central Canada. Livestock auctions occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits and poultry all featured. Additional information such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com. I just want to talk, so you've mentioned the, the haunted maze and I think I, I was in maybe the first year you didn't have a haunted maze, but you did the slaughterhouse in the, or the haunted slaughterhouse in the old uh, meat shop. Mm-hmm. So the corn maze is fantastic. Everything else is fantastic. But it, did you see a, a major jump in business when you went to the haunted or the haunted corn maze and to that haunted slaughterhouse? And when did it really balloon? Is Is that one of those critical moments in time where, Things took off to another big step forward. Well, it, we did have a haunted corn maze the final Saturday night in 2002, and okay. some friends said we should haunt that thing on the final Saturday, <clears throat> and so we did. We just ran around chasing people around the cornfield, and it was fun. <laughs> and people had a lot of laughs, a lot of screams, and we knew we were onto something there. So I guess it was in 2013 when we really took a big step. I, 2000, sorry, 2000. And, 10 would be the market we closed closed down the market on christmas eve 2009 so the next year we opened up that building for a haunted house to complement the haunted corn maze and eventually we outgrew that property so we moved it across the road where we had more parking and stuff like that we we did have parking issues that we were running into uh, you know potentially having the community say enough's enough and so we had to solve all those issues. And one of the ways to do that, we bought out a large haunt down in Missouri and had it all shipped up here. And we moved it across the road. Uh, just a much more efficient operation. So you you talk about all of the the people that are employed, you know, and I think, can we talk a little bit about just kind of at high level, you know, the number of people they have working for you through the summer and then all of those extra people that you bring in for that fall mm-hmm. Um, that fall run or those fall haunted mazes um, because it's, it's not, it's a spectacle. Like if nobody's ever gone through your haunted maze, it is not just two clowns jumping out of the the corn <laughs> here and there. It is quite a spectacle. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, in terms of the whole season, we'll have hundreds of people that pass through the door. Some are retail, some are working at the daytime maze, some are helping on the farm production. Yeah, and, and like you say, it's more than just a couple of people. It it takes uh, 150 to 200 to run the uh, the haunted corn maze uh, and all the associated things, whether it's from security to concessions to makeup to costuming to hiring uh, to acting, all that kind of stuff. And it's a it's a group that of us that really are passionate about it. Like not it's not just me. Many of our staff. This is our Christmas. You know, Halloween is our Christmas and we just live and breathe it. So we have a good dedicated group of people and they're here for a variety of reasons. Some just love the passion of scaring. Pretty much all of them do. Some are here on a part-time basis to pick up some Christmas money. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Some are here full time year round. It just depends on who we're talking about. But yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. So I'm going to touch maybe get away from the corn maze a little bit and and talk a, a little bit about some of the other things, right? So for anybody that's from Truro, they drive across Park Street, or drive down Willow Street, they're going to see the little red huts on the side of the road. Starts with <clears> strawberry <throat> season, then roll into uh, fresh corn season. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and and you know how that continues to have a, a longer connection with some of your customers and also adds a little bit of an advertising or promotion spot for you as well, right? So you've got the sign up on the side of the building, if you say, it says corn maze is open. Um, yeah, well, some of that direct consumer roadside stuff. Yeah, so that started back out of necessity in the mid 90s, as I mentioned earlier, you know, things are fairly tough for us. And we were in a like a use it or lose it kind of situation with the farm at that point. If things kept on going strictly with the beef on a downhill slope, then you knew where you're heading. And and we needed to do something different. So we decided to do strawberries and start with the UPEC. The year that first year in in strawberries, we had picked some strawberries for stores. There's different stores saying, hey, will you provide us? And we weren't doing a lot, but um one day Trisha and I got our wires crossed. I thought we needed 40 flats of strawberries. We actually only needed 20. So we had an extra 20 flats of strawberries. I think it was, no, maybe, sorry, 40 extra flats of strawberries. And at that time, they were, I guess, probably $25 a flat, $30 a flat. And so it was around $1,000 extra we had picked. If you don't move them, they're not much good the next day, you know. So $1,000 then was a big deal to us. And I remember feeling sorry for myself like what am I going to do with these and a friend of mine came along and said what happens if you stopped whining and complaining and went to town and dropped your tailgate and sold them would that be a better solution than sitting here feeling sorry for yourself and so that's really how our retail career began drop the tailgate eventually we built a booth and we really saw the roadside sales take off it was a direct-to-consumer at that time I actually sold a lot of strawberries as much as I could enjoyed that connection and then it was just a matter over time where you're right. You could put a sign on the side of your building saying, hey, the corn maze is opening this weekend. We do a flower festival things mm-hmm. now. And it's just a great way to connect with people and to build brand awareness. You know, for the longest time, because most things come out of the valley uh, in terms of crops, most customers like, are you from the valley? And no, we're from a kilometer and a half from here. <laughs> And once people realize that, they're like, "What? so these really are fresh. And yeah, we only pick or sell what we pick each day. And uh, we used to market that actually a lot, that we never sell day-old strawberries. We still do market that. But the real reason in the beginning that we never sold day-old strawberries is because there's two types of strawberries, fresh market or shipping. Shipping have a longer shelf life on them, but you have to reduce some of the sugars in them to get that stage. Mm-hmm. Fresh market have a sweeter flavor, but they don't have much of a shelf life. So what we picked, we had to sell that day. We could not, because of the financial position we're in, we could not afford to put up big walk-in coolers like many producers had. So because we couldn't afford that, let's turn that into a marketing opportunity of which we don't sell day-old strawberries. And people are like, wow, they only pick fresh. Well, that's because that's the only thing we could do. But we didn't yeah. tell you that. They don't need to know that, right? They don't need to know that. That <laughs> truth. And, and, and it was true. But um, that was one of our great marketing plays in the early days. 
And so to this day, we don't have walk-in coolers. We actually do pick. I know on any given day how many strawberries we're going to sell. You know, I've been doing it for a long time. Sweet corn, I know how many bins we're going to sell. So we don't have to worry about uh, getting stuck with anything anymore because it's just what you do. Yeah. So you touched a little bit on your your uh, flower festival. So it, it seems like every year or sometimes twice a year, there's something new going on. Um, you know, I think last year might have been the first time you did truck pulls. So I, I guess I have two questions is how the heck do you keep coming up with all these ideas? And then the second one is how the heck do you keep enough time between you and Trish and your family and staff to actually pull these events off? Because none of them are small. Like I've got a drone photo of the truck pole last year and it's amazing the amount of people that showed up. Yeah. Well, that it's kind of neat because uh, in, I know everybody sees me of, of creating all these weird and wonderful things. And in the early days, I did pretty much all of them. But now in terms of the flower festival, our daughter Jillian said, I want to do a flower festival. She had talked to friends in the States of ours. They were going to do it. And really that's where that came from. So Jillian, I want you to go out and figure out how this whole thing's going to work, and then we'll go for it, which we did. Truck pull, we had a young guy that started working here on the farm when he was 12, and when he was 18 or 19, went to carpentry school, now has his own business. He came to me about a year ago now and said, uh, you know what you should do? You should have a truck pull on the farm. And I said, no, you you should do. You should partner with me on a truck pull on the farm, because <laughs> I don't know anything about that. And we're yeah. already doing a lot of things. We have new things coming up. And so we partnered up on that event. And it was quite a success. You know, there was a lot of people there. Um, so a lot of our ideas come from networking, some our own. You know, our Baby Animal Festival, for example. Uh, Trisha went to work in the doctor at a doctor's office in, I'm guessing, 2013, 14, something like that. Uh, things were fairly lean for us at the time. So she went and got a job. And eventually we start turning the ship around. And I think it was 2018. Uh, Trisha said, I want to come back to the farm. Well, by then I was used to her feeding and watering us in the wintertime. <laughs> yeah, it was great. At first I was like, please don't go. How am I going to do this? And then she wanted to come back. And I'm like, Jesus, do we want to give that up? And so anyway, uh, she said, I want to come back. And I said, well, that's fine. We can do it now, but why don't you figure out how to replace your income? Mm -hmm. Don't just make it a matter of, I want to come back. Come back with something that, you know, could replace that income. So she came up with the idea of the Baby Animal Festival. Um, and that was quite a success. And then, of course, COVID hit in 2020, 2021. We couldn't have it, so we went back at it again this year. And uh, again, another success. So we're at the point now where we're well-known. Any event. Like back in the early days, any event we had, it would take forever to turn it into something. And now it's almost to the point because we are well-known and we do have quite a following and customer base and social media pages and stuff like that, that, you know, if it sounds like it could be fun, people will trust that we'll make it fun and they will come. Mm -hmm. So that is an advantage we have now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that goes back to the branding that you mentioned earlier is there's a couple of different parts of branding. The, the first one is the branding and marketing, but the biggest part of any branding is the trust in the brand, right? So people know the corn maze, people know the haunted maze, people like everything you do, you do well, people enjoy. So they're going to trust you a lot more than if I decide I'm going to have a truck pull on the 311, 
right? So I, I think that's a bit of it. So let, but let's get back to the branding. So you mentioned the hearse and driving Wendy's drive-through early on. Can you talk about whether or not you actually had a branding strategy, whether or not you just kind of said, let's buy this hearse? Because it was the talk of the town for uh, the first little bit when they, there was this silver hearse driving through town with River Breeze written across the side of it. Well, um, our marketing strategy was simply guerrilla marketing back in the day. And this goes back to talking about us saying that, hey, we only pick fresh daily. We don't sell day old strawberries because reality was we couldn't afford cooler space. Well, it's the same in terms of advertising. At that time, there was just nothing there financially for us to speak of um, to be able to afford spots on the radio, TV, whatever. It was just out of our reach. And so we had to do what I always said or what many people call is guerrilla marketing. And that was the hearse. In the early days before the hearse ever came along, our guerrilla marketing strategy was we couldn't afford a big ad in the newspaper. So at that time, it was before social media for anybody younger listening, they used to have classifieds in the paper. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. if you wanted a job, you looked in the back of the newspaper to two or three page of the help wanted ads. And we decided to take out a $50 little small um, classified help job, help wanted ad. And it simply said, pig race trainer required, two years experience (laughs) necessary, call River Breeze Farm, Truro, uh, 902-895-6541. And that's all it said. We had noted, we put the two years experience because nobody would have it. All we (laughs) wanted was people in the office to say, did you see what that farm, the corn maze or something? It's in Truro. They, They need a pig race trainer. And it was to get people talking. Yeah, I honestly don't know how many people we had write us, like maybe 50 or 100 applying for that position. <laughs> I mean, I trained the pigs, but what <laughs> it did was got people talking about this yeah. corn maze. And what's a corn maze? And people would explain what we were. And yeah. so that was our guerrilla marketing strategy, simply because we couldn't afford anything better. Then eventually we got a hearse and we lettered it all up River Breeze Haunted Corn Maze. We drove it through town. We drove it to Halifax. Then all of a sudden, friends that uh, I mentioned the young guy uh, earlier that partnered with us on the uh, the uh, truck pull, he was going to NSCC in New Glasgow for carpentry, Picto, New Glasgow, wherever it is there. And uh, do you want me to take that hearse over there and elaborate? I said, absolutely. So I had people <laughs> driving that thing all over the place. They'd have anybody had to go to Halifax, they'd take the hearse. And it was the word out there because you really didn't have much more money than that. So that was really has always been our strategy. Eventually, we did billboards and we do billboards and and things like that. But uh, that was the best, most economical way to have some reach. Uh, Yeah, I still uh, even to this day, I still get a I can remember the hearse rolling through town. And everybody, like, especially the people on the street, just stop and looking and kind of giving it a weird look because not only was it a hearse, but it was a deckled hearse. Yeah. Uh, So it was even more eye catching. So one of the things I I just want to touch on briefly is you mentioned COVID. And can you talk at a high level about some of the impacts of COVID that you felt as far as your your agritourism happened? Like, obviously, things were a lot different. Um, A lot of your stuff is a little later in the season. So what were the early impacts in that first three or four months of COVID and then through the first year and then eventually coming out of it? And we'll talk about the, the graduation and prom separately, but if you could just give us an idea of, yeah, just the overall impacts of COVID to, to your business. 
Well, it, in the early days when we went under lockdown, everybody did. Nobody really knew what was happening, what was going to happen. Obviously, uh, the U pick that year, we had to s- separate people. Uh, you know, our, our rows of strawberries are five feet apart. Well, you can only pick every second one. And there's so many things around there, the rules and regulations around it, getting our migrant workers here, quarantining them at the start. Yes. Uh, just so much. And like every farmer is the same. We want to be you know, growing crops and, and planting crops and things like that. We don't want to do paperwork. I think I became a professional office administrator or something. I don't know how many hundreds of pages that we filled out. But the COVID thing in the early days was tough on a lot of people. You know, when eventually they come out with the masking, that there's a, a segment of society not very happy with that. And then, of course, the proof of vaccination in 2021, not very happy with that. The restrictions, it took us down to 25% of what we were allowed to do. Basically, at that point, we leaned out operations all over the place. Um, there was no new attractions being added in 2020. You didn't even know if you're going to be allowed to open anywhere. Hmm. Um, eventually, it was at 25% capacity. So, you know, thank goodness we didn't spend any money. So it impacted our business that way. Um, I guess the, you know, not not to be negative, but you had to have a pretty thick skin. And this is where my training of, of you know, growing up, watching dad and uh, we got, we got a lot of people that weren't very happy with us, like 200 emails and messages a day, especially in 2021, about uh, having to require proof of vaccination. We get a lot of threats over that. Um, and that's where my training comes in, because growing up with a politician as a father, threats were just a Tuesday afternoon. And so I was used to that stuff. But I'll tell you, if 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 I didn't have the training I did, it, it was pretty pretty aggressive what we went through. And uh, so that's that's one part that I've never cared for about COVID is to see the ugly side of society. The, uh, the but the part of COVID that I did like, ironically, was the lockdown where we weren't allowed to visit each other. And I always look back on that part fondly because as a family, we just sat there and hung out. We mm-hmm. talked, you know, we had family time, we had family dinners and uh, it was just. That part I'll always look back on fondly. But from a business perspective, yeah, it hurt us. You know, it really did. Uh, however, because we were able to pivot and and lean out operations and split the corn maze days into two and have a morning shift, afternoon shift, and all that kind of stuff, we were able to actually get our bills paid, keep our mortgages being paid, which in the early days we didn't think we were going to. And so... We're, we're always going to remain quite proud of the fact that, yeah, we didn't make any money, but we didn't lose a whole bunch, too, because there are certain mm-hmm. segments of the business community that, you know, they just closed Definitely. forever. So we were able to come through that, you know, uh, still standing, not where we want it, but at least we weren't, you know, wow, we're going to have to stretch out our debt another few more years. So I was quite happy with that part. And what about coming out of COVID? So now... You know, a lot of those restrictions got lifted in mid-2022. How close have things returned to, air quotes, normal to the way they were before? Today, pretty much back to normal. Back during our season, there's still some people leery. Like our wagon ride, for example, once we were reopened fully this year, and and uh, like during COVID, our wagon ride, you had to have people separated by six feet, and 
and wearing masks mm-hmm. and all those kind of things. Um, this year, you uh, you know, you could load the wagons up as normal to go to the pumpkin patch, and there would be some people that is it okay if I walk out there to the patch? Mm-hmm. They still weren't quite comfortable, but they were comfortable enough to be out without mask on. We saw a few people wearing masks. Uh, it was just uh, just seemed to me like as the season progressed, people were falling into all right. We're breathing again. We're back to normal, uh, as normal as normal as normal can be. Now today, you know, we just got back from a flight a week ago. There's nobody wearing masks on the plane or anything. Mm. You know, it just seemed like everything's back to normal, and it feels good. So I I want to talk a little bit about more about the the COVID phase of of your business and. For those who don't know, you were very instrumental, not just in the local area, but across the province in working with former Premier McNeil and Dr. Strang to make sure that the graduating class of of 2020 got as close to a normal experience as they could during their graduation and prom ceremonies. Can you you talk a little bit about the driver behind that? Uh, And then ultimately, you know, this, I don't want to call it a spectacle, but the the event that you were able to put on for at least the local CEC or uh, high school to make sure that those kids at least had something to celebrate at the end of June. Yeah, well, there were a couple of things that drove that. My daughter was graduating that year, and in the spring, uh, you know, in May or late April, I guess it would be. She said, "We're not going to get to have graduation," and uh, and you can understand their disappointment. And then. The mass shooting happened mm-hmm. uh, in April, and our daughter's best friend since pretty much childbirth lost her stepmother uh, and father in that. So that really spurned me on that, you know, we've got to do something here. And and I know the Premier, I know Premier McNeil, and so I was able to reach out to him. And at first, we had a lot of doors slammed in our face and a lot of people trying to stop it from happening. So I kept on soldiering on on that one. And, uh, you know, outside of my business, my family and friends and everything, this will be, I'm sure, by the time I leave this earth, my proudest moment. Um, But we were able to negotiate with Premier McNeil and Dr. Strang directly to show them how it would work, to put in the plan, to get the community involved. Uh, We had 200 people involved in that. You know, we were, myself and, and our friend Janine and Trisha and I were the public face of it. But there's 200 people involved in that ceremony. And we ended up raising 60000 for that ceremony um, and really did it up right at the time that the community was hurting because of the event out in Portapec. And I guess after going through all of that, with the premier and Dr. Strang and then finally saying, I got the call saying, all right, we're going to allow high schools in the province um, to host graduation. And just to let you know, you don't even need to read the requirements because we based it totally off your plan. And that was a work of a whole bunch of us that pulled that thing together. And we were all quite proud and ecstatic over that. So I guess that, like I say, that's going to be our proudest moment that we've ever had to do something really good for the community through the businesses that came out of the woodwork. How can we support this thing to the individuals that offered their time um, volunteering, cleaning washrooms. We had somebody say, do you need anybody to clean the washroom, sanitize them between use? Yeah. Yes, we do. Like everybody was willing to do everything. And the neat thing about those 200 volunteers, they didn't have any skin in the game. 
Their kids mm-hmm. weren't graduating. Otherwise, they couldn't do that. So that's what it meant to the community. So for us growing up here and uh, just see, feeling that sense of community, uh, that was just a natural progression of many. Yeah. And, and again, like every event and you touched on a little earlier, like you folks don't really do anything half-assed, right? If you're going to do it, you're going to do it to the best of your ability. And I think that is another example of the benefit of that type of approach benefits far beyond just what you do uh, and could influence others to do their best as well. Yeah. And we've had all kinds of people since the graduation and then the prom the next year, uh, we went to work. It was funny because the next year, many schools knew that we were uh, responsible for getting graduation. So the next year they were going to allow prom and the amount of schools <laughs> around the province that reached out to me, like, Hey, can you help us with this? Can we get a prom? <laughs> and so we went back in on it because that the first year my daughter, Erin, graduated and she, she was able to get graduation from the farm. The next year, our youngest daughter, Jillian, was graduating, wasn't going to have a prom. So we got a prom. So both of our daughters had an event here on the farm, which is pretty cool. Yeah, um, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it really was. And it was so much fun to see the kids just breathing a little bit, just having fun. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the other things I'm going to touch on a little bit, and you you say you're the ninth generation and, and Nick and Aaron and, and Jillian are some combination of them are most likely to be the 10th generation at River Breeze and in, in Upper Onslow. Can you talk a little bit about what that succession and transition looks like? I know you said, you know, when Jillian wanted to do the flower festival, that was up to her. So how are the your three children part of the farm and what do you see and what do they see in the future of, of River Breeze? Well, and turn, I'll go through all three kids. Uh, Nick was born in 98. And during his early years, things were pretty lean for us. And we made a conscious decision then that um, we're not going to raise any child in agriculture, you know, because Mm -hmm. things were that lean. And, of course, someday we want to retire. We'll probably have to sell the farm to have any kind of retirement. That was what was on our mind in the early days. Well, over time, we all of a sudden started adding on these events and things like that. And things started to change to the point where... Hey, if one of the girls want to take over one day, Nick had already made up his mind. He was going to go into finance. He wasn't, he didn't want to be a farmer and, and that's fair ball. Aaron and Jillian, once they got to the mid teens or something, right now they're 19 and 21. So once they got, once they got to their mid teens or so, you know what? There's, we're turning the ship around. There may be an opportunity that a family member can take this over. And how cool would it be if it's one of our daughters? You know, agriculture is changing in terms of, women being involved as we know mm-hmm. but there's always a long way to go and it's still it's still pretty neat for me to see females who end up taking over farms I have cousins who have done it and, uh, and I like to yeah. see that so anyway I've always said to Trisha I said let's not really talk to them about taking over the farm one day let's have them come to us because it really has to be your passion yeah you know, we have a wonderful business here, but if it's not your passion, it'd be the most miserable existence. If you don't like dealing with the public as we do and all the positive and the negative, it would be a miserable existence. So let's let them come to us. They're growing up in it. They're working it. They're coming up with new ideas. I want them to reach out to us. So first uh, one to reach out to me was Aaron, two, three, four years ago, whatever it would be. And she said, you know what? I don't think I want a farm. And which was kind of odd because I always thought she would want to, but I told her, I said, look, 
that's you couldn't have made me any happier because I want you to do what you want to do. Because if you come here and you don't really want to be here, I when I took over and I was 19 years old, I felt no pressure from my parents at all. I felt some kind of family family obligation. And to be honest, at that time, I really didn't want to take over the farm. I would have mm-hmm. rather been a lawyer. That was kind of what was on my mind. But out of some kind of obligation of only inside my own head and no other external forces, I took over the farm. Turned it into what I want today. But I've I've had that life lesson. And the other lesson I mentioned earlier, I think, was, you know, I didn't stick out my education. So prior to that conversation with Trisha and I, I said what I would like to see them do based on what I've done or I feel I've done wrong is have them go get an education somewhere. Have them come to us first and say, hey, I'd like to do this. And then also go get an education somewhere other than around here. Live somewhere. So uh, one went to Dell, one went to St. Avex. Uh, Jill went to St. Avex. And then Aaron's now in NSCC taking architectural engineering. Um, Jillian is at St. Avex taking a finance course. And now they're both planning on taking over the firm together. And, And it's neat because Aaron is a production person, a construction person. Uh, Jillian is a marketing creative finance person and they both overlap and, it, and the firm needs both of those things here. So basically our succession planning to date is just talking about it as a family, bringing new ideas to the firm and, you know, what can they create to move this business forward? And that's really as far as we have gotten at this point, eventually we are going to have to bring in some kind of moderator that say, Hey, what do you want? What does everybody want? You know, yeah. we will go down that road, but we have been actively, once they announce their intentions, we have been actively having discussions from time to time. Yesterday, we were ordering uh, all of our seed for the upcoming season and having a family meeting on that. So we're doing it now, but we do need at some time to bring in some professionals. Yeah, it, it sounds, at, at least from this brief conversation we're having, is that you're probably doing the toughest part of the whole thing first, and that's including your children in early phases of planning and decision-making, where a lot of cases, you know, the next generation isn't brought into that until it's, you know, they're into their 40s, 50s even. You know, some I know some farmers and even some folks I know that weren't even allowed to make a decision till the unfortunate passing of their father or mother or uncle. So it's actually really encouraging to hear you say, we're bringing the kids, the girls in as early as possible because it it sounds like the farm won't necessarily transition. It will just confirm or continue to go through its evolution process. That's exactly Uh, right. And that's how we feel. We we make them create budgets uh, on various things they're doing and show us what it's going to look like. So, at the age, because remember, I took over when I was 19. Well, these girls are 19 and 21. You might as well be learning it right now. They see our financials. They see everything. Yep. Um, we're not hiding anything from them. They've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly because we've had it all. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I want them to experience all that. I want them to see what it's like to be success, successful. I want them to see what it's like to have lean times. They've experienced that all in the last two or three years due to COVID and other things. And I want them to know what they're getting into. I think everybody should be at the ground level starting out you know and a lot of that comes from for me i've never had a job in my life and that's why i wanted them to go and work elsewhere other than the farm at some point in their life uh, teenage years through high school and eventually Mm -hmm. when they get out of university go work somewhere full-time because i've never had a job 
and I was 19 when I took over. So to me, that's important that you learn to work with other people and see the other side of things. And I think they're getting the best of both worlds. Excellent. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. So just one wrap up question that's always kind of piqued my interest uh, specifically about you is what's next for Jimmy Lorraine? You've got a family history of, of politics. You've got uh, some family that are involved in local politics. What, what's what's next for you as you transition through the, the rest of your career? Uh, for me, it's seeing uh, the girls take on more. Um, we've got another event, new event planned for this coming year. We're working through the details right now. Our awesome. daughters are involved with another company, and hopefully another month or two we'll make an announcement or sometime around the airing of this. Um, so we're, we're in a constant state of expansion. Mm-hmm. And as I'm able to get out of the strawberries and the work that was required with that, as our daughters are coming on and working full-time in the off-season when they're not going to school, I see us being able to create more events mm-hmm. um, and do it with, you know, many hands make light work kind of thing. We've got a lot of good key people around here, including our family. And so for us, I really want to be able to continue to, you know, offer to families that they can create memories that will last a lifetime. And that's that's always etched in our corn maze. And that is the core of what we do. I mean, if you go through our cornfield, our corn mazes on our wagon rides, whatever, the only person ever on a cell phone during our daytime maze event is a mother. And the only reason a mother is on there is to take pictures of their children and what a time they had. Mm-hmm. And that's something we've always, we know today's connectivity and you're always on social media and the kids are always doing this. You don't see that at our cornfield. And that gets pointed out time and time again. And that makes us smile because we're doing something right. You know, we are doing something more than just charging people to come to a, to a corn maze. And yeah, you're, you're setting the family paradigm. We really are. And that's what drives us. It's absolutely what drives us. So every decision that we make is... You know, will it be good for our family? Will it be good for your family? And will it be good for the community at large? And those are the three things that we always think of, you know, when, when we're coming up with new ideas or expanding on additional or the current ones. So with that, Jim, I've, I've taken up probably more time than you expected today. I appreciate the conversation. If folks want to learn more about you or, or River Breeze and all the activities and events you have going on there, how do they find you? Well, you can look at our website, riverbreeze.info or our Facebook pages. We're always posting on there. Um, you know, you can join our email list as well through our website. So there's plenty of ways to reach out to us. Our communications are there as well. Excellent. With that, thank you very much for being with us today. And um, maybe we'll do a uh, an actual webcast from there someday and, and do a bit of a virtual tour for some folks. Well, thanks for uh, for doing it. I've had fun. I really enjoy this kind of stuff. It's the right time of year for me and uh, yeah. really enjoy yeah. reaching out. So thanks again, Brad. Thanks very much, Jim. Have a good one. You too. We'll see you now. Don't want to miss any future episodes? Subscribe to a Maritime Acast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime Agcast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of archesaudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes.